Welcome to the Holistic You community. I'm your host, James Weiler. Like you, I'm an expert in one area. And like you, I'm curious to know more. And that's what this community is all about. It's about asking the right questions to the right people to get the right answers and have a little bit of fun along the way. I hope the answers to these questions makes your journey a little bit easier. Welcome back to another episode of the Holistic You podcast. This week, again, we have the pleasure of welcoming on the show, Alan Patching. Alan Patching has held many hats in his life. He's had a distinguished career and he's had lots of different jobs and he's been recognized by his peers for his excellence in those different jobs. So I wanted to get Alan on the show to talk about a few things this week, but but really it's all about Alan's journey of how he got to where he is and hopefully he can share with us some insights about how we can better be prepared for being successful in our own careers. Welcome, Alan. Thanks very much, James. Pleasure to be here. So where should we start, Alan? Because I know you are good for a yarn and you are quite a good storyteller. So I was thinking that a good place for us to start would be for you to, to share a story of where you have been faced with a challenge and you've turned that challenge into an opportunity and then that opportunity has led to advancing your career or doing something that you didn't necessarily think would come about of it? I suppose the roughest thing that comes to mind for me, which I didn't have time to do any reflection or analysis about at the time, was I come from a family of five kids, well, actually six, but one died at birth and he was older than me, so I never knew him. My dad died when I was five and the youngest of us was still in utero, so she never got to know a dad. And I was brought up with the assistance of legacy in the post-war environment. So mum never had a lot of money or anything like that. The family family didn't. But we never had the sense that there was no money. We knew other kids had more than us, but we had, you know, everybody played together. No one cared about financial differences. It was a long street and there were only two cars in it in those post-war years, 1950, 51, 52, those sort of years. I remember I went to a Catholic school. I was an altar boy. I used to remember walking up the hill in you know, chilly winters to go and do the water boy thing. And there's, there's a guy up the road, one of the couple of cars on the road, was a light blue, powder blue custom line. And it was like the most incredible car you'd ever seen compared to all the others around the place. And I said, I've got to have one of those cars, you know, pretty early in life. So I'd already, I guess, been planning that I was going to do better and do as well as I could. And financial success was part of that. And a lot of it was driven by I wanted to be able to help mum and I you know, wanted to be successful myself and all this sort of stuff. Anyway, I went through the standard processes and eventually went out and started my own business after some time with the government. And I was very successful in the early career of starting a business called Resource Coordination Partnership. It's now RCP. It's a project management firm. In fact, we celebrated their 41st birthday because their 40th birthday was delayed due to COVID. And I was invited along and that was just last week. And that was good to catch up with the people who took over from me, who now are about to retire. Anyway, I was probably worth uh, a net worth by the time I was 38 of you know, three and a half to four million, something like this, which for someone who was brought up with my background, that was not going to happen. And that was back when three and a half, four million was a lot of money. It still is, but it was a crazy lot of money back then. Yeah. 
and and for like the listeners basically you you wouldn't have had to have worked again at that point with that kind of money no i probably wouldn't have i never thought yeah. that because I, I i made a job for the most part as i only work that's why i've had so many careers as you put it i only work in things i like doing and once i get to the point i rather one thing i'm not competent or two, I don't like doing it. Then I go and find something I do like doing. So uh, <laughs> it's I, just life's too short for. Yeah. I always say life's too short for one career, but that's unfair for those who do have successful one careers and are fulfilling. But life's too short to not like your work would be a better expression, right? You're spending yeah. hours and coming there, you know. Yeah. So it really, really is important. Anyway, long story short, stock market crash, and I lost over a million dollars in one night because I owned a lot of penny stocks and all this sort of stuff, particularly in America, and woke up one morning to hear that America had collapsed in 1987 or some darn thing. Yeah. Black Thursday or Black Tuesday, I forget what all I know, it was black. <laughs> That's the only thing <laughs> I've ever forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I thought, no problem, I'm doing some work with a Japanese company, I'll invest in property and those because they're state and solid, and then all of a sudden we realised that the the cross guarantees of the Japanese thing investing in two expensive properties, I'm sure, and they collapsed and the yen went from halved in value and that fell apart. So long story short, I ended up in a situation of being worth a couple to a few million to owing the bank a hell of a lot of money and the government at the same time brought in a rule that said anybody that had corporate loans and some of the older members of the audience there will be smiling or you know, wringing their hankies out to get rid of the tears when they hear this. But the government brought in to say, well, you can't just rack those loans up and let them die with you. You now have to actually pay them back. So I'd managed during the career of putting together a decent profit of stacking up a six-figure loan with the government, and the first figure wasn't in the first half of the 1 to 10 series. So it was heavy work. But I said, I do not want to be going to sleep at night and not sleeping. So my wife and I decided, no, we're, we're going to pay this off. So it, we effectively went broke. So I, I ended up owing a lot of money. I didn't declare myself bankrupt. I did a deal with them because a, a, a lot of the money that I owed was – penalty interest and stuff like this on properties. And I kind of went to the bank and said, I've been working with you for years, you know, this is just crazy. And they effectively said, with due deference to any lawyers listening, it's the legal department, they've got policy to follow, but convince us what we're going to get and we can make that go away. So it went from a couple hundred grand owing down to about 30 grand. And I found a way to borrow some money from my father-in-law to pay that off. And I was free of that, but I, I was completely, absolutely broke. And my, I was earning a lot of money for back then. I was, I was earning, you know, I had obligations in the contract I had, but back in those states, I was probably picking up a million dollars out of which I had a, a half a million dollars of commitment a year and then tax on top of that. And it was in the days of provisional tax, so that hurt as well. But still, we we had a good life. And that just disappeared to just a normal, regular salary and starting again. Now, the financial thing whacked me, but I'd been poor and I'd been rich. I preferred rich, but I'd I'd been (laughs) poor, so it was no huge shock. So I just started the solid approach to rebuilding. But I was so, how would you say it, shell-shocked, I guess, 
I wouldn't take a risk on anything. The money stayed in the bank. I rented houses until we saved some money. My wife's saying, well, we should be investing in a house, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And right. But I say, no, it's not right yet. And all this sort of stuff. Anyway, I was affected by a friend who's a friend to this day, an American psychologist and also a motivational speaker and I work with him on the circuit the guy I wrote the book with Dennis Waitley and he had a chat with me and if you're interested in the content of that because it was a turning point I can tell yeah. you later but for the moment he kind of said you, you can keep running your future life by the past life or you can kind of just switch that bit off but don't switch it off till you've learnt the lessons what were the lessons you learnt and the you know one lesson you should have learned is how to become successful and how to be you know have some wealth. You also learn how not to lose it, but you don't switch off the first part in order to activate the second part. Yeah. It was really good advice, you know. So yeah. all of a sudden, I listened to his advice, and he gave me a lot of other advice. And I had met him quite by accident. I'd, there's a hell of a story of walking home to the railway station one night because I was back to getting trains in those days instead of driving the car because the car had to get sold. And Serena Russo, who's a well-known business person in Brisbane, yeah. she was starting her business and the way she worked was she'd go around to everybody in building and say, will you take your staff from me, your secretaries and your receptionists? It was, it was all young women, people that she trained, secretarial, etc. And then by us saying yes, we would, because she had a brilliant relationship builder, she was able to guarantee people coming into her training school a job as soon as they finished. So it worked for everybody. And Serena, I've only seen a couple of times since I sold the business, but we always like to catch up from where we left off. She's a very successful and competent woman. And she said to me, I'm heading off to see a speaker from America. You've got to come with me. I said, I'm blasted. I'm getting the train. I'm going. She said, no, no, no. I've got a spare ticket. You're coming with me. Serena's not good at taking no for an answer, but you don't mind her you know, being like that because she's got the best of intentions. So she grabbed me by the arm and off we went. I forget where it was. I think it was up in the Sofitel or the old Sheraton or something like that. And Dr. Dennis Waitley was the speaker. And I was mesmerized by this guy's solid intellectual, sensible, but still humorous message about motivating yourself and inspiring yourself and putting life in a proper perspective. It was a wake-up experience at exactly the right time, but it got better because on the way back to the train station after, I took a long way around because I'd missed the train. I had an hour to go. I went to have a coffee, and it was in a coffee shop up the road from the station, and Dennis and his wife, Sue, were just sitting there having a cuppa. And I probably did the wrong thing, but I walked in and I said, I've never been to a motivational, introduced myself, I've never been to a motivational speech, but the timing in my life couldn't have been better. That was just unbelievable experience. Thank you very much. He said, sit down. And he's about to go fishing and his wife's about to go catch up some friends and do whatever she was doing. So he was asking me, what about the Barrier Reef? I think they were going to an island and he was going to do the fishing trips and all this. So we chatted about that because I knew it quite well. In the, I used to fly planes, so I used to fly around the islands. And if we had a job in Mackay, I'd stay on the relevant island like Brampton or something. You know, and We did a bit of work where we'd stop on Hamilton and all that flying rather than on mainland cities. So it was a good life back in the 80s. And when all that finished and Dennis come along, he was the most life-changing thing he kind of just really, really focused on that whole prospect again of 
don't let the past control your future. Learn from the good and the bad. Find out how you can strategize going forward. And that was, I went home and told my wife, and within weeks of that, we looked at getting a simple little property and building it up and then selling that and getting another property and building it up. And we didn't go into hoarding property like we had in the past because that's how we lost a lot of money because they're all balanced off each other. But we did, we, we, we have got to the point where we got to own our own home and the super fund got to the point where, you know, we, we, we felt comfortable. And I stopped trying to chase mega dollars and I chased, as he used to put it, chase your passion, not your pension. And, you know, I'm working at the university and they pay me well and I love the work. But I'm with the current industry situation, James, only recently I've had four or five job offers and they're all double what I'm getting paid here. But, uh, you know, I, I just haven't responded to them, just haven't taken them because I came to the conclusion then in the first phase of life, to use an expression used by Carl Gustav Jung, Swiss psychologist, there's no point climbing the ladder of life and climbing and climbing and get to the top. And when you get to the top and look over the wall, you think, holy hell, I've climbed the ladder, but the ladder's been against the wrong wall. And that was definitely the case for me. It was all about the money and it was burning me out. And I just now, it's all about doing work I like with people I like keep myself interested, keep a mix, but I'm never, ever, ever going to be attracted to a job just because of money. It'll take a hell of a lot more than just money to get me out of bond. There's no figure you could name to get me out of bond in my current situation. That might sound ridiculous, and please don't tell my wife because she might want to influence that decision, but I'm perfectly content in what I'm doing now. There may be a time when that'll change, and I may think differently. But that's the most important turning point I got. Going broke, what Jung would call the great shuddering. You picture what you've done that was useful, which tied in with Dennis's words, and you picture what you're doing that was wrong and for the wrong reasons, and you reconstitute it so it's not just about you. It's about you, the people you work with, your family, the community you're working in, and it's that connectedness thing coming back again. Probably a bit long-winded, but that was a pretty emotional time in life. Yeah. Well, thanks for being so open with that situation, Alan, because, yeah, that's some pretty intimate details that you're sharing of yourself. So we appreciate that. I definitely agree in that money is as long as you have enough and as long as you have enough to give opportunities to yourself that you want to pursue or your family. I personally don't think chasing the dollars. I mean, I work as a financial planner, but I don't think chasing the dollars is what you want to do. It's about doing what you're passionate about and, yeah, your environment that goes along with that and the people you work with. I don't think I'm trying yeah. to say cut money back. If you can be really passionate about your job and have a nice balanced life and earn yeah. two million bucks a year, go for happy it. Days. Yeah, yeah. Happy days. But the priority is the balance and the money you need will flow based on your attitude to life and all that. That's right. So... Moving on to, so I think what we've covered there is basically that was obviously quite a pivotal moment in your in your life. So let's change tact a bit. And obviously you've been and are still very connected. So can you share with us some of the benefits of really investing in people and being connected and networking and just having that really open mind to that? Because I think obviously we met at a networking event ourselves but I know some people that may potentially see themselves as introverted, 
find it hard to go to those events and they think it's so curated and all that sort of stuff. But I personally think that it's just a really good thing to know lots of people because then you can introduce them to other people, they can introduce you to other people and then, you know, so on and so forth. But can you share with us maybe an anecdote or an insight as to how that's helped you in your career? Oh, look, networking is without a doubt essential to a really successful business career. And to me, we run a couple of things at Bond every year. We do two where we have a lecture. It's all after hours. It's all free to the students where we have what we call a networking event with someone from the Career Development Centre and myself. We talk about principles of networking. And the following week, we have a thing called industry engagement event where we get alumni. For In fact, we'll have to get you to come and sit them on up the front. And I moderate it. And the students ask people questions. How do we get a job? What should we be looking for? All this sort of stuff. So we try to enculturalize them, if you like, into the importance of networking and, you know, how to prepare CVs and all this sort of stuff that's done through CDC as part of the education external to their degree, but just as important as their degree. So I do think it's incredibly important. Now, it's about how to work a networking event, because if you're introverted, and even if you're not, the tendency is to make a beeline for someone you know. And if the someone you know is with a whole stack, and, and that's because it's safe. Your brain likes doing stuff that's safe. The limbic part of your brain goes, that's safe, I'm going there. Now, that's great if they're with a group of people who they can introduce you to that you've never met before, and the networking can then start. We could talk a lot about networking principles. One of the principles I've got is every time you've met someone who you think you'd like to nurture a network with, it's not just about joining them on LinkedIn. That's important. But I like to keep a note on the business card they give me, and some people still do, or in a little notepad. I I might even have one here. It'll just be the day I don't. Yes, I do. So I buy these little things by the dozens, and I just keep them in my pocket, and I'll just open it up and write a note. And then a couple of weeks or whatever, I might be in a magazine store killing a bit of time and I'll find an article and maybe someone says we love sailing and there's a sailing magazine and whatever. But whatever it is, I'll pinch an article out and I'll email it to it or send it to them with a handwritten note rather than email. But most of the time it would be a handwritten note, but occasionally email. And just saying, oh, when we met at such and such a place, you were talking about this and I thought this article resonated with what you were talking about might be useful to you. Now, Mostly when you do that, someone will ring, they'll sometimes email, but normally they'll ring or text and say, that was really great. I forgot that we'd even talked about that in the article, but it, they just, you went the extra mile, so they do. And I think that what's networking about, it's not so much what you can get out of the networking, it's what you can do for someone and that builds up a head of steam for them wanting to do it to you. And it may well be, that you spend a year of doing and get nothing in return. But in my experience, you will get it when you want it. So there's a, I know two or three people. I can't open every door in Brisbane. I know a lot of people in Sydney and a lot of people in Brisbane, but I probably know a higher level of person overall in Sydney because of the time I spent there. But up here, I know probably three or four people, one or two in particular, and they can pretty much open any door in the city. So if I want to meet someone, yeah, you do. And I think it's incredibly important as early as possible in life for everybody to meet that one or two people who can really help them out and then you helping them out so they want to help you out with connection. Yeah. You know? 
On the other hand, I quite often get people saying, well, you work for 15 years for 50% of your time in the Middle East. Can you give me a list of your contacts? And my answer to that is no, because I'm not going to insult my contacts because Arabic people don't believe in let's have a meeting and start doing business. It's all about build the relationship over a period of time. So I'd be destroying my network and not doing any favours to the person. So there's all those cultural things. The one thing you mentioned that interested me was introverted people. Well, in any room, there's going to be a proportion of different types of people and there will be other introverted people. Now, I think introversion is it's a personality characteristic for sure, but it doesn't mean that successful people have a characteristic of not having introversion. I don't buy that at all. No, me neither. So I think practice helps you you may still be introverted but you can be introverted and comfortable so practice of going perhaps with someone who understands how you feel and 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 is a friend who you trust and you take them along and they introduce you and this sort of stuff you can become competent at the process of networking despite your introversion and maybe be good at it because of your introversion because on the other side of the scale, we've got an extreme extrovert. And I'm not talking from a Jungian perspective here because that's a different definition of introversion and extroversion. But you get extreme extrovert and sometimes you, if they're taking control of a group, you feel like saying you've got two ears and one mouth. How about using them in that proportion? You know? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. The introverts, well, it's it's not it's not good to label anyone anyway because I think everyone is a, an ambivert. They're a bit of you know most people. I think everyone is has to be a bit of both. I but agree. normally, if yeah, if you give them a voice, they've got a lot to say, and normally what they've got to say is much more interesting than the person who just speaks all the time. So I mentioned Waitley before, Dennis. I haven't seen him for a while. The last time I saw him with his, it was at his daughter's wedding. We went over for that. But he has this thing he created called the Dialogue Circle. It's been developed by a number of people since, but it was initially his idea, I think. So he says every leader should learn this skill where you get a group of people around once a week, once a month, sitting around a table. You can pick a real problem topic that you've got going, or you can pick a topic, say, at a university. It might be if I was vice chancellor for a day or a week or whatever. And you get people around and say, everybody gets three minutes to give their point of view and not a minute more, not a second more. You'll be given a 30, you know, 10 second notice, whatever. And the chair controls that strongly and no one is allowed to criticize it. They get their say without criticism. And when everybody's had their say in the dialogue circle, we then go around again where you get a minute or two minutes to offer criticism, comment, praise, whatever to any of the other people. And it does two or three things. It separates between a quick negative response to someone who might be introverted or to anybody who might be offended by a strong put down. It makes those who are quick off the mark to speak stop and have to think. And half the time that's enough to make them calm down. So it's not a volatile or you know, toxic response. It, indeed, it might make anything like that just disappear. And he told me about it. We wrote it up in the book we did together. And I've done it a lot in my own business life, and it's one of the best techniques I've ever get, I've ever gotten. And you are dead right. Sometimes the quietest people in the room have they have just as much life experience and just as much stuff to teach you, like my quiet, well, not so quiet Italian friend on the Olympic Stadium having that insight about leadership. Yep. It, he may well have been 
someone who'd never tell anybody except his group that because no one ever asked him. Now, he's not an introvert by any stretch of the imagination, but the, the, the metaphor is still holds. Yeah. Give everybody a chance to give their input. They all have a life experience and you might learn something incredibly special. Yeah, that's right. All right, Alan, I think we we might end it there. Look, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a, been a pleasure having you on and, and having you share your insights. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with before we finish up? Yeah, this might sound a bit weird, but there's two things I like to talk to people about when we're just having a chat, when they say what's important in life. And one of them is your relationships, nurture relationships. And the other is yourself. And the two things that knock people around at the moment is they don't understand a lot about the depth of relationships and can be a bit tricky. And the other thing is they um, sleep. A lot of people, they just don't understand how much sleep can affect their life if it's bad. So when I was in clinical practice, I produced two products that I used to sell on the internet. Well, I produced several, but there were these particular two I think would be useful. One on reprogramming your sleep patterns and one on helping you get to sleep even if you don't reprogram. And the other one to help with relationships, a few relationship tools. So those products I don't sell anymore because I just don't have time to keep updating them and they probably could do with some updating, but they're still relevant to the extent of the material in them. Mm. Um, so if any of your listeners is having trouble with or watchers, uh, viewers, are having trouble with sleeping or they just want to know a bit about either personal relationships or a few insights for business relationships, I'd be more than happy to send you the links of those and they can contact you and feel free to distribute them. They are based on readings of documents I've written and certain audio programs that are all based on hypnosis. At one stage when I was in practice, I was either board certified or registered in three different countries in clinical hypnotherapy. So they're all based on that sort of stuff. So it's just an offer to your, your viewers. And yeah, well, I'll, I'll definitely myself be taking you up on that, Alan. So yeah, thank you. We'll definitely leave that option in the show notes. Okay. Well, I'll get those to you. Over the, it, it's a bit hectic because it's the last week at Bond, but uh, give me a yeah. I'll get them to you early in the new year, if not before. Absolutely. Thanks again, Alan. That was an absolute privilege to be talking with you people. I hope my stories didn't extend beyond a reasonable point, and I hope it was <laughs> to people. And, you know, I don't know when they'll watch this, but I hope you either have had, you either will have a great Christmas break or holiday break, and if you're watching it after, I hope you had a great break and catch up in the future. And to you, Alan, and your family. Thanks very much, James. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Holistic You podcast, where we inspire you with the confidence to live a happy, healthy, and more balanced life. If you found today's content meaningful, please tag me in your stories or posts or follow me on Instagram. Like and subscribe and leave a five-star written review.